With Capella University's FlexPath learning format, you can earn your degree online at your own pace and get support from people who care about your success. Imagine your future differently at capella.edu. Caesars Sportsbook is the only sportsbook app with Caesars Rewards. That means win or lose, every bet brings you closer to the types of perks only Caesars can offer. Like hotel stays at over 50 iconic destinations, bonus bets, daily profit boosts, tickets to the game, dining, and so much more. Whether you're a new or existing customer, Caesars Sportsbook is always rewarding. Must be 21. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Caesars Sportsbook. Don't just spectate, participate. This isn't your average business podcast, and he's not your average host. This is the James Altucher Show on the Stansberry Radio Network. Big fan of Neil Strauss and his books, The Game, and now The Truth, and his many other books. And also, he's a friend of the podcast. He's been on before. Neil, welcome to the show. Well, thank you for having me back, despite some of the comments I read after the last ones. Wait, what, what were the comments on the last one? Oh, it was just one guy. One guy was like going wild on Twitter, and I'm sure he's listening now, because I was talking about your mom, and he was really upset by that. Um, and I felt, of course, when I read it, that he must have his own issues around that. What was he upset about? Uh, I think he was upset that I was asking you. It's funny, because you're so vulnerable and open on your blog, but I felt he felt it was somehow inappropriate that I was doing something inappropriate asking you about your... Uh, parents and your upbringing to figure out the keys to who you are. Oh, well, let, let's get even more inappropriate then on this, on this podcast. Great. So, Neil, we all know what the game was about. It was about, you know, your experiences following kind of the pickup artist community and, ha- and then how you kind of got into the scene yourself in a big way. And it reminds me of this kind of genre of literature, like you see it with guys like A.J. Jacobs or, uh, you know, where they kind of put themselves into the experience and then write about it. You know, Josh Foer, who wrote about, uh, you know, becoming the U.S. memory champion or Stephen Fatsis, who becomes the, the a big Scrabble player. You became one of the best guys in the pickup artist community. But now you wrote this book, The Truth, which I want to – it's not quite the opposite of what you were saying in the game, but it's a totally different book. It's totally revealing. I would be scared to death to write a book like that. And it's basically the, what, what you are going through as you experience or you try to find the truth about relationships. Do you want to describe – Like I, so I've read the book several times now. I could describe the whole book from beginning to end, but I don't know how much of a reveal you want to give here. But what, do you want to describe what the, the truth was about? Sure. I mean, first of all, you could probably do it better because I'm so close to it. And secondly, I'm open to discussing or revealing anything. I feel like the book is divided into three parts and it's basically – uh, shame uh, is kind of the first part and exploration is the second part and uh, kind of um, satisfaction sort of combined with health is like the third part. And I'm being very broad and general and we could start to narrow down, but would you say that's kind of true? Every interpretation I suppose is, is true and I haven't heard it described that way, but it's a really great uh, analysis of it. I think it's, I think it's, I think it's right though. I hadn't thought of it myself like that at all. I think that's great. Well, I'm curious then why, why you haven't thought about this. Let's drill down. So shame. Um, I kind of feel because in the beginning you cheat on your girlfriend, um, and there's kind of a, a reveal later about her, but you cheat on your girlfriend and you're ashamed about it. So you go to essentially 
uh, sex rehab and exploring this shame and like why you feel the way you do about cheating and so on. So, so let me ask you, how's your interpretation different? Um, oh no, it's interesting. I mean, I think my interpretation is I never thought of each chapter as sort of a, a each section as a sort of a, you know, emotional theme versus, uh, the, the storytelling arc. So, so I think, yeah, so I think yours is absolutely accurate. I think when I try to think what I think about it as, I don't know, it's, you know, it's the oddest thing. If you ask me to describe any of my other books, I could give you like a little capsule phrase. And this one, I like, I'm so close to it that even after I did a bunch of interviews for it, I still felt every time I wasn't able to represent the book. It's very odd. Well, it's, it's interesting because you're so close to it because to some extent, I mean, you, you were living like basically you, you, and I'm going to stick to the first section for a little bit. You cheated on Ingrid, your girlfriend at the time, you kind of go into the why, the how, the, what, how, what you felt like, the writing itself is great. Like everything's a cliffhanger, a page turner. I feel like I'm reading a novel while while I'm reading it. After you uh, wrote the book, did you feel uncomfortable with all the things you were saying in there? A few things. I guess every book I've ever written, I've been scared to put it out. And if you're scared before you're putting it out, it's a good thing. So I did feel that fear, and that fear is a sign that you're really saying something uh, meaningful or vulnerable or important. And I think I had paved the way a little bit because I did books with a lot with rock stars and cultural figure books with Motley Crue and Marilyn Manson and all these other autobiographies that I kind of wrote with them. And so we had a bunch of rules for them and I really held them to those rules, which are a, you have to tell everything. B, you can't be afraid of what anyone else thinks like your, your, your kids or your wife or your mother or your father. You just have to tell the truth. Otherwise you're robbing hundreds of thousands or millions of readers for just one person. Uh, and three is you have to say even the things that make you look bad. And if someone if someone wasn't able to do that, I wouldn't do a book with them. And I had to hold myself to those same standards. I, I think it's so interesting because so many people um, decide not to write a book because they can't – I would say 99% of the people who start books can't follow those rules. And, and that ultimately separates out art from – either not doing a book or not doing a good book. Yeah, exactly. Or one that just sells for like a month because someone's in internal fan base buys it and then it just just disappears. And I think it's true. And and what I learned from those books was that if you say share the things you're most afraid to share, you'll resonate with everyone else because they have those secrets and those feelings locked up inside. Or you'll resonate with a certain kind of person who you're speaking for. Great. So we are, we're all in these relationships where obviously we like look at other women and, you know, some people act on that. Some people don't. What do you think, um, you know, now looking back on it, what do you think in that relationship with Ingrid, you know, initially, uh, made you act on it and you, and you explore this deeply in the first chapter, I mean the first section, but without any real conclusion to it, there's just a lot of, um, theoretical stuff, not theoretical in a bad way, but like, you have so many different opinions on what could have happened when sometimes people just wander. Well, I think there's always a reason for what you're doing. And if you don't know the reason, uh, then you're maybe living an unconscious life. So to, to, uh, back up over a couple things we said earlier, uh, what one is, one is the reason why that person who email who texted, who Twittered caught my eye was I realized He's not defending you. He's defending his mom, right? He was defending his mom because the reason why it stuck in my head, I was like, oh, I want to talk to this guy. I'm doing this whole podcast just for him to say, hey, listen, don't, if you don't defend a parent, uh, 
because you want to just see the truth. And um, I'm probably going a little, I'm going to go like a step deeper than I want to, both for this guy and both because it addresses what you wanted to talk about, which is that you're living an unconscious life if you don't understand yourself. So the goal, part of the goal of the book was to understand my behavior. How could I cheat on somebody I, I care about and, and I love or supposedly love and want to have a relationship and want to have a family with? Like you said, sometimes people just stray. But if you think about it, you're violating your ethical, or I, at least I was, I don't know what everyone else's ethical system is, but you're violating your ethical system, your moral system, you're sabotaging your future, you're hurting, all these things are going in there. So it's not just straying, it's really an active, you're committing an act of trauma against, you know, this psychological health of another human being. You really are. Yeah. So why do people do that is it's simply this, they're compulsive behaviors, right? If we have a compulsive behavior, a lot of, think about all your books are about choice. When you're not making a choice in your own life, you're under control of compulsivity. It could simply be this. I'm going to stop eating, you know, refined sugar. You can make that choice today. Easy to say or anything else. But if you still eat it after having made the decision not to eat it, then you've been hijacked by something stronger than your decision-making process or your will or what have you. And then maybe you need to explore why that is. So there are many reasons why people cheat. The, the biggest reasons people cheat is... Uh, I'll get back to it in a second, man. This is gonna get kind of deep right away, but we're we're, we're going for it. You gotta right. you gotta you can't do a podcast without get, saying something that makes you scared. <laughs> that's right. That's right. The, I think I think there are many reasons people cheat, but I think the biggest reason why is a fear of intimacy, and and it sounds like an overall thing. I mean, if someone said that, I would be like annoyed if like you know Dr. Drew when someone says that. But I want to explain kind of what I mean by that, and again. Uh, so what it, what it means is this, Hey, first of all, everybody's free. You're free to do whatever you want. If you're married or you're in a relationship and you meet someone and you want to have sex with them, you're absolutely free to do that. Even if you're in a relationship, you just have to be honest and accept the consequences of it. Right. You're so, sort of saying that the standards you should have the same standards in life that you actually have in your writing or that you acquire in your, in your co-authors on books. You're kind of uh, equating the two in a weird way. Yeah, it's funny. I didn't make that connection, but I think it's absolutely true. And you can tell your partner you're doing that. And if and if sleeping with that person is more important than your relationship, you know, then then uh then 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 go for it. But people start to get this idea that I'm trapped. I'm trapped in my marriage. I'm trapped in my relationship. And it's a it's a story they're telling themselves. It's a psychological story because I think growing up, and this is where the the, the why comes in. For a lot of people, they grew up trapped by someone else's needs. And those needs were usually the parent of the same sex that they're attracted to. So in my case, it would be, here we go back to mom. In my case, it would be mom. And so so why, why I got passionate about that Twitter guy is because I thought, if you're defending a parent, then you don't get to, you don't get the gift of seeing yourself. So when we talk about mom and dad, we're not accusing them of doing anything wrong. Everybody is imperfect. And we're just trying to see ourselves objectively what what uh, factors in our upbringing, what shaped our entire brain and entire and our entire belief system, uh, you know, or at least the architecture of our brain, uh, caused us to make the decisions we make. So there's a pattern, which is this. It's called enmeshment. And it's when, when a parent uses a child to meet their needs instead of meeting the needs of the child. And this often happens emotionally. If you have a uh, depressed parent, a parent who pulls you in the middle of their divorce and makes you choose size, a uh, parent who's overbearing, who's full of anxiety, 
um, who is a child themselves and you have to take care of. All these reasons cause you to kind of lose your childhood. And as soon as you get trapped in a relationship where someone else's needs overwhelm your own or you feel their needs as demands, uh, or I don't, again, I'll talk about myself. This is 100% true for me. You start looking for an escape. <laughs> um, the needier they get, the more you draw away. The more you draw away, they get even needier. You start to look for for an escape or, or a way out or some outlet to release the anxiety and tension, and that often becomes the affair. And it sounds insane, and it took me a while to believe it, but it's, if you start to watch this pattern, you really see it happen. And as an example, when the Ashley Madison hack happened, I looked at an interview with uh, some of the guys who were caught cheating. In the first interview, I think it ran in Vice. The guy said, my biggest fear is that I'll get divorced. And they go, why? And he says, well, I just can't get divorced while my mom is alive. It would break her heart. Oh, that's so interesting. Right. So he's still worried about, you know, his mom's needs over his own. You know, I've seen in one article where you've said people tend to marry or, or have relationships with, uh, or at least become close with um, people who are the opposite of their, uh, let's say, you know, opposite sex parent. But I've also read that people tend to, like men tend to marry their moms, you know. So which, which one which which one do you think is more true? Because they're both, I, I've read both sides. Yeah, I, I, think, I think it's true that you can marry someone like that parent or you can marry someone who is the opposite. So you can marry in reaction to that parent. But I think the, the, deeper, the deeper thing is that we look to marry, and again, I would say probably 60% of the, I don't, a certain percentage of your audience is really getting insight from this and some audience is resisting it. And whether you're getting insight or resisting also is going to depend on how you're raised. Um, so I think, I think it's fascinating. But, but if you look at it, your first experiences with love, your template for love and care uh, is set is set by those parents. So here's what I think happens. You look for somebody who embodies, and this comes from a, a guy named Harville Hendricks who writes a lot about relationships. You look for somebody who embodies the worst traits about your parents, trying to change them <laughs> um, and get them to give you what you never got as a child. And it sounds kind of heavy, um, but often that's what happens. I'll give you uh, like uh, an example. So you had enmeshment. Your, your mom was very needy and was also somewhat controlling. Like, how did you take? How did you um, at least initially? You were you were. Did you see that those worst traits in Ingrid, or like what happened? Yeah, for you know, for sure. Like, I think Ingrid is uh, when we did Strengths Finders that test where it tells you your strengths. Her strengths are like you know command. So she's very commanding. She's very assertive, and of course. When I married, when I met her, I thought, "Oh, she's sweet. She's nothing like mom." And then, as the relationship goes on, those personality characteristics come on: the, the command uh, and the, you know, assertiveness and the stubbornness and all these things. And at that point, you have a choice: the choice is to either a, tell your old story and let the let the relationship dissolve into a power struggle that ends badly. And the old story could be: look, she's trying to control me. She's telling me what to do. I was happy before. I had my freedom. Or the other choice is to say oh, this isn't coming from a place of fear and anxiety or whatever I had growing up. This is coming from a place of love. That's just who she is. And I need to work on myself and not see it as control, but to see it as a confident person who I wanted to marry. What if her, like, let's say, commanding side is coming from her own issues, though, of like who her father was, you know, versus you? It's, it's 100% coming from her own issues. That's why the cover of the book are these puzzle pieces fitting together. If you really do this, if you want to do an interesting dialogue or figure out stuff out with your partner, See how similar your mom was to their your, their mom or your dad was to their dad. You'll find things are either almost very much the same or exactly complementary. So for sure, growing up, you know, she it generally tends to be the pattern that someone who is 
uh, enmeshed, as we said, by the sex of parent they're attracted to, will uh, connect with somebody who was abandoned by the sex of parent they're attracted to. So one person's automatically going to be needier in the relationship. The other person's going to be more avoidant in the relationship. So anyway, in her case, specifically, she was always a rescuer in her family. She had a rescue mom. If she didn't rescue mom from the bad men mom was dating, you know, the bad abandoning man, men mom was dating, uh, no one would be safe. So she gets into kind of hero mode, right? And she'll want to save the day by, take, by taking charge. And that will trigger my own issues of control. And I hope that everyone here, who's here in a relationship reckon, has either recognizes how this, how this can happen. Um, and that this, what I was going to say earlier was the biggest epiphany I got from the book. I want to talk about how to get past this, but the biggest epiphany I got from the book is this. Your relationship has nothing to do with the other person. The success of your relationship has really nothing to do with the other person. Uh, it all has to do with uh, how you relate to the other person. It has to do with you. Let me ask about that because let's say you're you're with somebody and I don't know, and you decide you don't want to be with somebody who's going to cheat on you and they cheat on you. So that's something that was outside of your kind of, let's say, sphere of influence there. You know, now it has nothing to do with you. It could be her own issues or his own issues, you know, depending on who you are. What are you supposed to do? You don't say it's my own problem. She's the one who, or he's the one who cheated. You might leave the relationship because it's not for you. Exactly. So there, I mean, there are two, there are two things. One is, yeah, your choice is how you relate to him. So if you're, I know people who cheat, a lot of people say I would leave that person as soon as they cheated. But often when they're, when, a, when that rupture happens, uh, they stay in the relationship and distrust them the whole time. So it's still how you relate to them. You find out they cheated and you can either have the self-esteem to walk away or B, if they show not a willingness to change, but they actually go and do the work and are willing to earn back trust. Uh, if you choose to, you can stay, but those are all your choices you're, you're, you're making. And secondly is you also chose that person. So what part of you chose that person, you know, and look for that in, in, uh, in the next relationship. If somebody says, all men cheat or all women cheat. I always think, well, you've chosen the, the men or women who cheat, or you chose to see men or women that way. And and what part? What part is your what part is your responsibility? And so, so it's all you know. One thing I really appreciate in the book is that I get this overwhelming sense that you want to get to a point where you're not judging anybody and you're not being judged. And you're trying right. to find throughout this. You try. So we're going to get in, into the sort of might be considered the more meteor section in a second, but I sort of feel like throughout all of this, you're just trying to find out what you like and how you can express what you like in a way where you're not going to be judged and you're not going to judge the people around you. And that, you know, sort of makes for a good relationship if you're, if you're both happy in that context. It is amazing. Like so much of the time when I hear somebody complaining about their partner and I got to drill in, like I'll, I'll really find that their story is just not the truth and it's mostly about the way they see him. And so to close the question from before, so what do you do? Obviously you said her behavior is coming from her own stuff is that on the other, so there's an overall pattern that relationships go through, right? And the first stage is projection. You're projecting whatever will fill the empty space in your heart on this person. They're the one, they're this, they're that. And you see them through this, this, this mist that has nothing to do with them, but just with your own sort of needs. And then gradually it comes to a point where, uh, you know, there's always that three month or six month window where, you know, when so if someone can't have a relationship longer than six months, you realize they've never actually been in a relationship uh, where they, you start to see the real person. And that's when people get upset. They say they tricked me or I was, dis I was disillusioned. They say, and to quote Joseph Campbell, 
he says there's nothing better than being disillusioned because now your illusions are gone. You're seeing the real person. So at that point, you actually get to see the real person. Those issues start to come out. Those all the childhood fears come out. All the all the the imperfections start to come out. And then as phase that they call the power struggle occurs. And then on the other side of that are several choices. And uh, either a there's a marriage or a relationship where we're always fighting and arguing and intensity or B there's one where you're living two separate lives in, in under one roof three you separate or four you work through it and the way that Ingrid and I work through it with through all the work in the book and, and the consultants of all these experts is that we recognize what's ours in the relationship so I think hey like she knows she knows when she's taking over in hero mode that it's about about her her issues and not about me and I know it's about my issues not about her you kind of just gave the reveal which is that you cheated on Ingrid then you go through all this sex rehab. Then you tr- you tr- explore all the alternatives. And when I say explore all the alternatives, it's everything from like orgies to sex parties to um, you know the, the the house where you're all living together and trying to have kind of a, almost this commune like sex house. And and then finally, the reveal of the book is you're, you get back together with Ingrid. You're married and you you have a kid. Right. And and, and by the way, I, I always thought I knew like anyone could look me up and see that I was married. So I always thought of it, the book like Double Indemnity, where you know the answer at the end, but you want to know how, how did that get there and how did, it ha- how did it happen and what can I learn about myself along the way? And, and you know, one of the things you, 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 you learned is that love is the process that needs to be learned somehow. It's like all these things you're saying about parents, these are things you're not, you're not taught at the age of 18. You're kind of like thrust out into the world of adult relationships and no one ever taught you. Or, or the individual, how to learn how to love or be in relationships. All these things you discovered in part through uh, mistakes or, as you say, being disillusioned at different points. So It's amazing. Yeah, it's amazing. And, like, I actually – I think – and I only realized this after writing the book is that, like, there's a problem in our culture where, you know, if we're, if we, if we're sick, we go to a hospital – uh, for our physical health, for our intellectual health, we have to go to school, but there's no, we're not taught about our emotional health and there's nothing. And the only way, reason we get any instruction on our emotional health is we, if we really sort of are, are, are really behaviorally sick in some way. And I think that culture needs some apparatus for teaching people about emotional health. Cause I hear even people thinking they're talking about positive stuff, talking about really emotionally unhealthy things, that things that sound good in our culture. You you made the first attempt, again, in this first section where you tried to go to sex rehab and you were exposed to, let's say, a couple different philosophies of rehab and that means, I mean, like like my, my feeling is when I see, oh, celebrity just checked in for sex addiction, rehabilitation, I think that sounds like BS. Right, it's funny that, it's funny when people say that, that, oh, you're, that's just an excuse to, to, to win back the public or to win back your your, your, your wife or your partner or something. And I'm sure some people go into rehab for that reason. But for, I think for most of the people there, they're really trying to find out, you know, what's wrong with them. I love, I love, I'll tell you why I love addiction therapy and I love rehab. Even, even if I don't necessarily believe in addiction, in, in, in say sex addiction as it's defined by most of the people who define it. Why I love it is this, because lives are at stake. So for most people who get therapy, you go in an office and you talk with someone for, who's way overpriced for like an hour and then you leave with a couple pieces of advice or a couple thoughts or maybe they just listen to you. Uh, and then there's no treatment plan. It goes on forever. But in rehab, it's like, okay, if we don't, if you're, there's not a change, you, you may die, right? You may, you know, shoot up too much. You know, you may, an esophageal vein may burst from, from alcohol. You may actually die. So, or you may 
get an S, you know, get, get a, you know, a fatal uh, disease of some sort. So lives are at stake. And so they just have to use what works. And it's, I think the therapy model they use there could be more widespread across to, to everybody in, in the good, in the good therapies where they really deal with uh, good rehabs where they really deal with what we're calling your core issues, your family, core family issues. And so that's where you started to, to kind of, I mean, that's where you started talking about enmeshment and so on in the, in the book. Yeah. And so, and so the answer to your question is when I checked in and at various points, they said, they said that sex addiction was, uh, if you mass, if you watch porn, if you masturbate, um, and, and I think there's some groups that like sexaholics anonymous, where if you have premarital sex, that's all sex addiction is, which I probably just made almost every one of your listeners a, a, a sex addict. So, so, so it's so insane. So I think like the bludgeon of sex addiction is often used to advance, uh, uh, a sex negative stance, you know, on society. So that's where it's, where it's detrimental more so than people just claiming it. But that said, there are obviously people with sexually compulsive behaviors that hurt their lives and the lives of people around them. And in other cases are just straight up abusive and, uh, and, and illegal and, and, and everything. So I think if you have any behavior you can't control, um, especially if it's one that's harmful to you and the lives of others, look into it, whether you call it an addiction or not. You, you, you reached this interesting position in the book where it's felt like you were getting some nuggets from the sex rehab, but you weren't quite like, uh, an addict, let's say like many people might be. So eventually you check yourself out. But what would you say is the one thing you gained the most from, from the experience in the, in this part of the book? The awareness, uh, the awareness and it's fascinating. So I gained the awareness of all the patterns that play out in my life that cause me to be dysfunctional in relationships. So I gained the awareness, but the amazing thing was that the awareness was not enough, that the awareness was not enough. And that's kind of where that second section begins. And by the way, I was thinking about your intro at the beginning of the show, and I'm not sure about those books. I know for some of them, some of the books are book ideas. You know, someone comes up with a book idea and a proposal. They sell the proposal. They go do the book. Uh, in, in my case, for my books, I usually I'm just living my life and have a problem that I try to fix. And at some point along the way, I'm in the midst of it. And then I think, think you know what, I, I should – I need to write a book about this because I'm sure other people have this problem. Maybe I can solve it. So, so the game, you were fascinated by this community, but then you became so fascinated you wanted to become a part of it and even like dominate it. And in this one, the truth, you're, you're, it's more memoirish in the sense that this is like you're telling an interesting story that, that a lot of people can relate to. Uh, and it happens to be a very compelling story about sex and relationships and your own experience – your own very intense experiences with it. Um, you know, part of the thing I was wondering when you were, when you were, when I was reading the book was this sounds almost like, did you throw yourself into all this drama so you could write a book? Oh yeah. I, I wish I could say yes. <laughs> cause, cause, cause let's go into the second section. What I define as the second section, you go all out. Like, you know, I think honestly, I'm just gonna be real honest. I think if I was like at a sex party, I would not function because I would just be like totally nervous about everything happening around me. And I think you, you, you sort of eased into it that way as well. Like you were just, you know, it was like, it seemed scary to you at first, but then you like full force got into it. Exactly. No, I relate to that neuroticness. I mean, the, here's the, the irony was so, so yeah, I, 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 after I went through all this and I really tried for a year to do all the sex addiction stuff and stay in the, the program and every, all that other stuff that they want you to do. Uh, I was just like, you know what? Monogamy isn't natural. It makes no sense. I felt like I was just um, 
just it just felt unnatural. I was unhappy. I was miserable. I'm just like, why am I and why am I going along with this? Like, there's nothing in science. There's nothing in biology. There's nothing. There's nothing that makes that says that human beings are supposed to be monogamous. And and so I thought maybe, and this is when I decided to write a book. It was going to be a very different book. I thought, you know what? Maybe I need to find the type of relationship that works for me. That's true to who I am as a human being. Why am I accepting this this trope that the Catholic Church in the ninth century decided it was going to be the way things are and started enforcing. Why are we still living under the shadow of that? Well, was it the Catholic Church in the ninth century? Because, I mean, like, monogamous relationships have been in, in many different cultures for thousands of years. Yes, and I think uh, and I think if we look at our at where it came into in our, in our culture and what was happening before then, um, that was – I think that was the influence in our culture that really started making it uh, a doctrine – and, uh, and 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 making and not allowing divorce and, and all those sorts of uh, you know and all those sorts of tropes. I think if you trace in our particular culture where it came back from, it would be that. But I'm sure I'm sure there are, there are narratives and arguments. So okay, so now you start exploring, and nothing really was like it. All sounded like fantasy world. Like every guy could like, or maybe every woman too can um, can say, "Oh my gosh, this is like sexual fan like Disneyland." But at the same time, you weren't quite. You were very quickly. Uh, getting unhappy with each alternative you were trying, like very quickly, you were getting unhappy. Yeah, I get. I got into the the, the polyamory world. I tried to live with several girlfriends. I, like you said, I tried to put together sort of everything was sort of okay. If I can just, I and, and exactly. So nothing worked, and I was I. But but that said, um, the reason nothing worked was not because those uh, lifestyles don't work. They work great. There are plenty of happy people in polyamorous relationships and open relationships and every type and variation, variation relationship you can think of. And there are plenty of unhappy, miserable people and they're just like the same and the same goes in monogamy too. Uh, and the, the, eventually I realized that the common denominator between all these relationships was me. And the problem wasn't that relationships were broken. It's that I was broken because it's easy to blame society. <laughs> it's much harder to blame yourself. Right. That's interesting. So, so what do you think made you unhappy then in turn? Like, okay, put it this way though. We all grow up thinking, you know, thinking that monogamous relationships are the way we're supposed to go. So doesn't that make it extra harder to have like an open relationship or polyamorous relationship? I think that's absolutely true. And there's something called the burning period where you change your relationship style or you open up your relationship. There's a period of even as much as two years that it takes to sort of deal with all the emotions and complications that brings up. And you're absolutely right. There are no models for it in the, in the, in the culture, no healthy models for it. There's no, uh, we're, we're, we're just not taught that. So, so you're absolutely right. And it definitely takes a transition period yet. I mean, I think like anything, if you switch to a new career, you're going to have to learn a new skill set. It's going to be tough for a few years as well. So I, I, I'm not, I'm not being critical here, but did you feel, do you feel like you gave yourself a chance to, um, put in the two year burning period on these different types of relationships? Uh, I mean, oh no, the, the answer is, um, they already reached such a depth of dysfunction, um, that they went to survived that period. Um, so, so I think again, like instantly, like when you had like everybody living in the house, that was like instant, that was like three days. Yeah, yeah, pretty much, pretty much. Yeah. And I thought this would be great. I mean, I, I'm going to choose three people who I've had, um, non-monogamous experiences with already and. And we'll love to get there in a house and we'll talk about this and it'll really be about, uh, you know, sexual freedom and exploring and, and fun and connection and freedom and within 
like a few days. It, it, I mean, it, it, it was, it's, and I really thought that in my head, yet in retrospect, having talked about enmeshment, if I feel trapped by the needs of one person, I'm going to feel three times as trapped by the needs of three people. And if you can't handle a relationship with one person, they don't try to do it with two or three or four. One other thing I was curious about was, I mean, there was like basically three women. What if they had outside relationships? Were you okay with that? Oh, yeah, of course. Yeah, I was, I was okay with that. In fact, I think, let's see, I think one of them may have. I think one of them did. Yeah, one of them was, had someone. Yeah, I was okay with that, of course. It wasn't like going to be some kind of like, uh, you know, pa- patriarchal, you know, backward thing. Of course, it was, everybody was free to do what they wanted. But but yet, but yet uh, now that you're in a monogamous marriage with kid, if Ingrid were to suddenly start having sex with somebody else, it would probably upset you. Uh, but it's funny. I'm actually not here. Here's where I, here's the conclusion I came to. Uh, and, and then Ingrid's uh, feels too is that um, the whole idea of monogamy and non-monogamy is just a stupid dichotomy. Like it just – it's just what it, – there's, not, there's nothing – the word – that there's nothing like – you know, there's no truth to, the, to monogamy or non-monogamy. It's just a cultural concept and the marriage that we kind of chose to have. And first of all, when I got back together with her, I was – I just wanted to be with her. I had no desire to be with anybody else and, and – uh, and over time, we really discussed discussed this stuff, and especially after she read the book, and and what we said is that whatever our marriage is, we're gonna do whatever is true to the three entities that are in our relationship, which is me, her, and the relationship itself. So if it's healthy for those three things, then we'll do them. We don't have to define itself by anything. So, for example, if I'm on a book tour and I meet somebody and I want to sleep with them. Is that healthy for her, the relationship? Not really. So that doesn't need to be done. But maybe there are other things or, or adventures or maybe there's a later point when, when it is. So we're going to be true to ourselves, not to some vague cultural concept. So it's funny because all the press was really – I want to say the press was very sex negative about the book because it was all like, you know, whatever. Game author embraces monogamy, monogamous marriage or something. And I thought it's very – it's not like promiscuity is bad. It's not like monogamy is bad. It's not like non-monogamy is bad. Uh, it's why you're doing stuff that makes it bad. It's not uh, – or it makes it unhealthy. It's not what you're doing. So OK. So how do we how do we all kind of work internally on sort of building that health so that we can handle, let's say, either – you know, or, or basically handle the type of relationship that you're, you're handling right now? Great. Yeah. Uh, so I, I would say the, the answer is – and by the way, the other key to the relationship is – total on, really honesty. I, like I really am. I let her know everything. There's no part of my life or my uh, desire, sexual life, everything that's compartmentalized or kind of protected from her. Like let's say you were just uh, attracted to some woman walking down the street. You wouldn't necessarily tell Ingrid every single woman you were attracted to, you know, that you looked at. I mean, I would, o- I would only tell her, I mean, I would only tell her, first of all, she did her own work to get past her own fear. So a lot of times when someone's like, worried about someone watching porn or being attracted to other women, what they're really worried about is being abandoned, right? There's nothing wrong like with having desire for another human being. There's nothing wrong with that. But some people in relationships have so much fear about that because it's about their own abandonment issues. They're worried that they don't, they're not worthy enough or they'll lose that person and through control, they feel like they can get safety. So Ingrid did her own work as well. Like, And without me even requesting or saying anything, when I got back, she saw how much I had changed through all the work I'd done after this whole period we talked about and she started like getting interested and she started working on her own stuff. And then I think together we met at that place where she had less fear of abandonment. I had less fear of being smothered or trapped. 
uh, and then together we could kind of build something new. So what would tell me the question again? I got off on a tangent. So, so yeah, cause I, I, I distract you with radical honesty, but you were oh, going to say oh, yeah. about how do how do we build up this, this internal health or how do we at least, I don't think anybody can be totally healthy. I think it's a daily sort of practice, but how do we, what is that practice? Uh, there's a phrase I use that uh, you have to become a scientist of your own lows. So you have to take the journey, your own journey. Uh, it, and, and that journey is to really discover, you know, yourself and uh, to find the find the person you were kind of born to be or, or supposed to be and find the part of yourself that's creative, that creates in life. You know, people talk about the authentic and false self, but they're so hard to determine. So I prefer the terms, the creative self that brings forth and creates and the destructive self. The part that uh, overreacts to things, the part that hurts relationships, the parts that hurts yourself. And so by looking at the points where your response is inappropriate to the situation or where you can start to find, uh, let's say, the unhealthy psychological cancers that you can start to zap. I like this notion of overreact because it also feels like a very um, – uh, I'm going to call it secular Buddhist notion. The idea of noticing yourself reacting perhaps irrationally to something in the world and just simply noticing it is kind of the key to dealing with it. Yeah, and I think the first step is to notice And By the way, an overreaction doesn't have to be – getting angry or losing your temper. Uh, it can also be shutting down. It can be being, uh, you know, snide and critical. There are places we overreact. And what it is, is it's, you react as if, if it's, if it's, if it's or, or fear, you know, I'm sure a lot of people have a fear of, uh, fears that are, aren't valid fear, uh, fears of, uh, around money and other things. So where, where do we go into survival mode when we're actually going to survive and our life isn't in danger? And it's probably because, Back when we were a child, it was survival mode, but now it's not because we're adults who can take care of ourselves and we're going to be okay. Uh, you know, as long as we're not killed, you know, we're going to be okay or w almost whatever happens. So, um, so looking at those things, you can start to almost run a virus scan that maybe that's it. it's running a virus scan on yourself and finding the bugs in your operating system. That's really interesting because the reality is we like, you know, Assuming no major bad things happen, we are probably going to be okay and live long lives. Like there's an average lifespan of, you know, if you're already like in your 40s, your average lifespan could be in your in your 80s now. So you're going to be okay in the long run, at least in terms of living on this planet. But, you know, we, we kind of um, bog ourselves down with so many stresses like, is she doing this? Am I losing money on this? Am I worried about this? Or why are they treating me like this? And all of these things are so unimportant. Um, and I guess that's yeah. a little what you mean by, by health, but again, how can we, how can we start to deal with that better and better? So here's, here's what you do. Number one is like what we were just talking about. So the first step is self-awareness, really becoming aware of the things that drive you. And like you said earlier, sometimes people just cheat. Sometimes if you just do, if you, if you accept that, uh, way of thinking, um, or then you, you need to know the why. You need to know the why of why you do the things you do and why who you are and why you are that way. You're really understanding the root causes. So the first thing is to become aware of them. Okay, but that's that's a bit that's a challenge because most people don't um, look the layers deep. You know, they, they they don't have the ability or they don't want to. Yeah, I mean it's true, and and the reason they don't want to is because we built defenses against the pain inside, right? And they don't want to because of that pain, especially people who are sort of. Uh, you know, grandiose or feel like they're better than others. Or, uh, I just, uh, someone, uh, 
this writer, James Hollis, who I, who I love and just spoke to this, this group I run said, um, narcissism, uh, is the ref- reflection of a, you know, of someone who's of an empty inside. He said it much more eloquently than I did, but, but, uh, but, um, what are the, we have to recognize the walls we put up to protect ourselves. Irving Yalom was a, a writer described stuff as imagine a city that's built a wall around itself to protect itself from foreign invaders, from invaders. And, uh, and years, years later, hundreds of years later, the invaders go away and the wall's still up, even though the invaders are gone. So we have to break down those walls and it's scary because we've been trained by these habits of 10, 20, 30, 40, 50 years to think they're still out there. So we're going to have a lot of fear. A lot of times you don't even realize that they're there. Like, and I just want to, um, tell you a recent experience. I had something, um, relatively traumatic happened to me recently and I realized in the past two months that um, just looking back on it, I didn't, I wasn't aware of it at the time, but I canceled every single trip, uh, like business trip or vacation trip outside of New York. And I always had a good reason of canceling them, but there was such a significant pattern. I'm like, why? Finally, I'm realizing why am I canceling every single either business trip or conference or, or vacation or whatever outside of the city? And I, and I didn't even realize I was doing something kind of a little bit more internal uh, until someone pointed out to me, like, look, you just had this huge stress and traveling itself is a stress. And so you're probably constantly trying to find reasons to avoid that stress. And you're smart enough to keep finding like good reasons when they're actually, the real reason might be this, this initial stress you had. And you needed your friend. And that's, I think that's the big, I needed my friend. You're exactly right. Like I couldn't have seen that on my own. Cause I, cause I had good reasons. I was, right. I was telling yeah. myself I had all these good reasons. The smarter you are, the easier it is to fool yourself. <laughs> and, and, now, and, I fool myself all the time, so I'm you're really smart. Yeah, but but I guess we want to get to the place of wisdom, where right they, beyond intelligence to wisdom. So the yeah, the key is this. I mean, I think it's tough, and that's why this book's kind of tough to talk about. And maybe this even I don't know how this conversation's kind of landing with people, but I think that the game was about behaviors. It was really easy to be like, oh, if I turn my body a little this way and don't approach somebody you know, head on, like they're going to have a better reaction. And if I say these words, they'll be easier and behaviors are easy to change. This book, maybe if you want to sum it up, it's, it's about beliefs and it's so hard to recognize your beliefs, let alone change them because you're living with yourself. Like trying to see yourself is like trying to touch your left elbow with your left hand. Everyone else can do it, but you. Well, well, so, you know, it's funny because in the game, you're trying to basically create these artificial conditions where you feel like you're in control of a social situation. Whereas in the truth, you kind of had to give up control in order to finally fa- find, you know, essentially the marriage that you're in right now. Yeah, you nailed it. You nailed it because in childhood, of course, I had a I couldn't let myself be vulnerable or defenseless because I would be, uh, you know, hurt or, or extinguished or what, you know, and, and so other than, the, so, and other than the enmeshment with your mother and you discuss that in the book, do you think there are other reasons you felt that way? Like, did you, did you think you were unworthy in some way of women? So kind of, um, cheating or, you know, using pickup techniques or whatever. Oh, for sure. For sure. For sure. Yeah. I, I think, I think for sure there are plenty of other reasons. Another reason is validation, right? Like I grew I find that a lot of guys who read the game and, 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 and are attracted to that, uh, had a critical parent who was made a bit, a bit well-meaning, but it was always like, you just got to be, you sh- that should have been an A or, you know, you're not good enough at that or your brother or sister are better at that. And their crit- the parent was using criticism, trying to motivate, motivate them to greatness. And all the parent did was crush and destroy their self-esteem. Um, 
and uh, and and then they then you walk around feeling like not enough. And uh, and you said shame, and shame's the key word. Anytime you're out there and 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 you feel less than somebody else, because all human beings are of equal worth and value. Whenever you feel less than somebody, like someone's better than you, your shame's just been triggered. So that's one key to identifying that stuff. And so you walk around a constant shame and you know, meeting someone and having their, having them like you, then we don't have to, it doesn't have to be at sex, having them just like you. Some people who flirt, right, for, for positive attention is like a, you know, a shot of heroin uh, to uh, that sense of shame. The validation is the, is the drug. So what made you finally say, okay, I can't, um, I can't handle all this stuff anymore. I'm just, I'm going to go back to Ingrid and, and see what that's like. It was uh, the producer, Rick Rubin, who's, uh, who's in the book and, and, He's I write for Rolling Stone, and so and he was uh, very non-judgmental of you in this weird way throughout the whole book. Like he was like this cool guy who was always pointing things out to you. But hey, you were still like surfing together and stuff. It wasn't like oh, I can't be friends with Neil anymore. No, he he was who was like a true friend. Like, and I think you'd need someone in your life. Uh, and if you don't have it, I can talk about that. But you have someone in your life who can reflect yourself back to you, so you can see yourself a little bit. And he said, "Look, you you got everything you wanted in the game." You, I remember when he read the game when it first came out, he said, I don't think it's done. And I was like, oh, you're just a perfectionist. It's done. Um, and he said, you got everything you wanted. Uh, you know, why are you still not happy? And, and so that maybe was the conversation or it was actually probably a hundred conversations before I realized he was right. I was like, what are you talking about? I'm happy. You know, before I realized he was right. And that, that really was what set off the journey as, as in, in addition to my guilt over what I'd done. What happened then? So, so Rick is talking to you. And you're not happy, um, but you're going through. You're happy. Well, first off, what was the most amazing, amazingly pleasurable experience during this uh, uh, exploration period? So people could kind of judge uh, what you were giving up when you kind of went back to, let's call it quasi monogamy. No, good, 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 good question. Because we're definitely talking. We're talking about it. This is heavy, heavy stuff. And and uh, so the, I would probably say it was when I was. Uh, this sounds so. Uh, quote unquote heteronormative sort of like very sort of like normal heterosexual culture fantasy so i think it was when i was dating i was dating somebody who and she also liked women so we would bring lots of female partners home and so they're definitely like literally probably when i wrote those books on motley crew and 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 marilyn manson and jenna james and all these books looking for those to be around people who had these larger than life sexual experiences. Uh, I was finally having ones even maybe, maybe they hadn't had. So that was definitely the most like decadent period. And were were your friends like jealous of you? Um, either a little jealous or a little living or, or a little living vicariously, but must've been so busy. You probably didn't have time to like get back to your quote unquote normal life. Like that's, it's pretty busy to do the exploration you were doing. Yeah. No, I remember like the other, or, or they would try to like kind of hang out to, to like, I remember they like show up at my house at like weird hours just to see if like there was something going on that, that maybe there was like somebody going spare or something it was really like very, very like, uh, yeah, I mean, I don't, I don't know. It's funny. There's something called euphoric recall where you imagine the imagined experiences in the past is great, but I'll tell you the challenge of being with multiple people is not actually people think, oh, how do you? What's the choreography of it? It's actually the mental choreography because we're with a bunch of different people. Someone's 
uh, you know, worried about something. Someone else is uncomfortable with this. Someone else is, oh, they have a partner. They're cheating on someone or someone else. Maybe they're, uh, it's a woman with her girlfriend or girlfriend's not into uh, a guy being there. Like, so you're actually dealing with the, the mental choreography, not the physical as much, especially if you're like me or like you who are in, in semi-neurotic. Yeah. I, I honestly, I don't think, I don't think I would like it very much. Cause I think, um, I mean, obviously there seems like great aspects of it, but I think I would just be constantly jealous or insecure to be honest. Uh, but I will say maybe you just have to go through the burning period enough to, to do it. But I will say there were definitely like, if I think about it, there were definitely like some sexual moments that were like, you know, probably like the high of a heroin addict's greatest rush that I that I'll probably never that you know that'll never forget as far as peak kind of pleasure fantasy experiences. And so, okay, so coming down from this, they're, they're in the they're in the book. <laughs> so I don't I feel like I feel like talking about them seems seems. Uh, no, no, they're, they're definitely in the book, and I and I and I'm gonna keep recommending the book. But I want to get now into so you you get back together with Ingrid, and and you know even more so in terms of writing. So let's just skip ahead. You get back together with Ingrid. And you're you're married. You have a kid. Obviously, you've you've made huge changes and decisions. And then you write this book, and she reads it. Th- that must have been a scary moment for you when she's reading the book. Yeah, for for sure. I think that definitely the moment when she when Ingrid read the book, and it's and it's got everything. And the scary part wasn't the experiences I was just talking about because those things happened were apart. The scary part was me talking about my, my inner monologue sometimes when I'm with her and I'm resenting this and annoyed by this, you know, uh, that was the scariest part. And, uh, and she read most of it, just the worst parts really. And as she said, she read it more like a journal or a diary than like a book. And she was upset for a couple of days and we kind of talked through everything so she could really understand it. Um, and since then it's been, it honestly has been the best thing that's ever happened to us because as I said earlier, there are really no secrets. She really knows me. And I think giving the partner the gift of really knowing you and then being able to make a choice, because that's what we do when we cheat. We're just, we say, we do what we want to do, but they don't get a choice. You know, they don't get a choice of whether they want to accept us or not, knowing who we are and what we've done. So, and, she, and her knowing all that and making the choice and knowing who I am and knowing there's nothing hidden. A lot of the fears and insecurities in the relationship came from her not knowing stuff. Um, really just we're, we're great. It really brought the relationship to a new place. So I recommend every, everybody do it. It was kind of resolving the uncertainty plus saying, Hey, I'm, I'm here. I'm like going to tell you all this, but I'm also here. So, so then she could kind of trust that you're there. Yep. Yep. That, that, that's, that's a, that's a great way to put it. And the truth is if you show yourself to somebody, right? If you show yourself to somebody uh, and they choose no, they're doing you a favor. That's that means that person's not right for you. Do you really want to go through your life? You know, I talk to people and they're talking about gaming their wives or their husbands or their books like kind of why men love bitches that are about uh um or you know even the game to a certain degree uh but it, about emotionally withholding a relationship so your husband doesn't think you're too needy. My thought is like if you're not showing up as yourself in your relationship, you're not in a relationship. Yeah. So so uh once once she read the book. Did she ever feel like, oh my gosh, Neil has this great outlet. He can he can be creative. He can write a book and talk about all this stuff. But now I'm going through all these things. Like, what's her creative outlet to kind of do psychic surgery on herself? Yeah, well, it's interesting. I went through some really cool processes, and I, actually, I wanted to come back to that because we never really talked about the the ways to kind of get over stuff. And she went through some of the processes that I went through in the book, and they're available to 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 anybody. But I find I found that what really works to change uh, 
is so so anyway so she went through that stuff herself and and she's super creative anyway um so she didn't feel like it it's actually cool that we get to speak the same language and recognize the same things and by the way it's not required if she if she didn't do any of this stuff i would be totally fine and accept her as obviously as she is that's why you're with somebody so your partner doing the work isn't a requirement being able to communicate is a requirement but they don't have to do the work they don't have to do anything you, you, you know, you say one of the most important lessons you learned through this whole process is that you can't make anyone happy. Yes. And, you know, I think that's really interesting. Like, you know, too often we do want – for you, all of the issues are about control and, you know, wanting to, 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 to please and feeling shame when you didn't and then um, getting out of that completely to, to do the exploration. Um, it seems like the biggest thing you learned about yourself is that I'm not going to – try to change anybody else. And that's going to be the key to a relationship that I'm in. It's so true. I think there's kind of two parts to what you said. One is obviously you don't have to do anything, but if you're going to be with someone, accept them as they are. And if they choose to change of their own accord, that's just a bonus. But a lot of people are in relationships thinking, oh, if only someone could do this or do this or be like that, then it'll be great. And all you're doing is you're setting up a toxic pattern for you to just resent them for not changing and poisoning the relationship. So you have to be willing to accept someone as they are to have a relationship with them as not as you wish they would be. Well, what the, if you really like like eight out of 10 features of someone you just, and you love them, you love those eight features, but you don't like the final two and you're afraid like, that you're not going to meet somebody who uh, is going to like you again, you know, cause you're insecure. <laughs> <laughs> you will accept eight things out of 10. Like, and, and, and here's the deal. There's something Rick Rubin said about collaboration when artists are collaborating. If he says if somebody if you're if you're collaborating as artists and you all agree on everything, then the other people are re, are redundant, are irrelevant. You don't need them because you all agree. So there hopefully a eight out of ten sounds great. And then it is your work to learn to accept the two things out of ten that allow them to be in a unique individual who's different than you. You know, eight out of ten sounds awesome. Yeah, I kinda like that. And then what was the second part of your question? You're afraid that if you – if things don't work out, like let's say let's say the two things are actually intolerable to you. Um, like, like for instance, they want to cheat on you or whatever and you don't like that. Um, but you're afraid that you're just not going to meet someone who's got these eight things that you really love. Yeah, got it. So yeah. so And I, and I think that does happen. People stay in relationships because they're afraid they can't meet someone else again. First of all, I would look at the things that are intolerable to you because if they're – like even being – if you're afraid that they're going to cheat on you – it may be your own story that comes from your own abandonment or because mom cheated on dad or dad cheated on mom. So the first thing is the things that are supposedly intolerable to you. I would really look at those things and see what of yourself you're projecting onto those things. So, so I would first explore that. Secondly, if they are intolerable, such as somebody is emotionally or physically abusive, right? And cheating is emotional abuse, I would say. It's just funny. I think that, that, that fear keeps people in relationships that I won't find someone again. And that comes from a core belief that you're not lovable. So if you think about the two things you said, and I'm just thinking out loud right now, the two things you said are nothing about the other person, they're about your own belief that you're not lovable. Again, you might have been just projecting about someone else, but maybe not. Um, because A, I'm afraid that she'll cheat on me means there's someone better out here for her than me. B, uh, I won't meet anyone means no one else will love me. So they'll come, so those things are actually all about you and the belief I'm not lovable. So I'd work on that because guess what? Any relationship you get in with the belief I'm not lovable will probably become a self-fulfilling prophecy. You know, it, it's interesting because this is related to the idea, and I, I think I heard you mention this on another podcast where um, relationships aren't about like 
you know, we're, we're kind of like in this success or failure binary society. And so you either like are married forever or you're, and it's, and it's a quote unquote success or you're divorced and you somehow failed. And you mentioned um, that relationships are more like something to learn from rather than say that was a success or that's a failure. Um, you know, do you, do you, you know, and I feel that's what the truth was all about. Like kind of what you learned at each step of the way and all these different relationships you had. The, the, I think, I think that's so true. I really think that people say if a, if a relationship ended, they think it's a failure. I think the failed relationships are the ones that last longer than it should. When I talk to somebody such as my, when I look at my parents' relationship, they've been unhappily together for, you know, something like 50 years. So like afraid to fail. Yeah. So that, yeah, but the fail, failure is staying in an unhealthy relationship. That's not good for your spirit. Right. So you have to kind of redefine your definition of failure. Uh, and that, that applies to every area of life, like book writing, business relationships, and so on that, that failure, quote unquote, society's definition of failure might just could be mean, what can I do better from here? Yeah, it's funny, you know, I watch and I, I agree with what you're saying because I think yourself, me, everyone else who's been successful in life realize, you know, says there's no such thing as failure. There's only learning lessons. But I learned something from my son who's now nine months, which is when he's 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 learning to walk or, or he's learning to sit up. He's always practicing like all day long. He'll practice, he, you know, first it was trying to roll over, then it was stand, sitting, standing, now walking. He's always practicing. And when he's practicing, he can just do it all day. The very few times when he tries he gets frustrated and uh, and annoyed so i just think how can i be in the state of practice versus the state of trying i love that i think that's how can i be in a state of practice versus a state of trying is like such an important notion um you know this begs the question really you wrote this book it's so intense uh about relationships and everything we go through in relationships which are really kind of the most important things in our life what are you going to do next? <laughs> You're going to have yeah. to like totally turn into a drug addict or something. Like what's going to happen to Neil? Yeah. 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 No, it's funny. You know what? I, I, I think that maybe the cycle of, you know, books that are about problems in my life that I try to solve maybe at an end. And, uh, and there's some other books that I have under contract that I want to write. I really want to write a book. I, I, I'm not, I want to write a book. I think this is going to be the next book. It's really going to be about communication. Uh, because I think, people do it really badly and don't get heard. And I think people listen really poorly and don't actually hear what other people are saying and they make up a bunch of stuff <laughs> that, that they assume is that way and respond accordingly. And that this leads to a lot of uh, uh, everything from murders to divorces to, to you know, pain, suffering, misery, and disconnection. So I think I'd love to write something about communication that maybe is a, an addendum of sorts to this book, but uh, you know, not necessarily related to it. It's just about rethinking how we speak and listen. One final question. Um, you know, I heard somewhere you say that, uh, you have to remove the phrase, what if from your vocabulary? And I didn't quite yes. understand what that meant. Simple, simple example is so many people I talk to about relationships may say, well, uh, I'm, well, I'm happy now, but what if, and everyone has their one, what if, what if she cheats on me? What if I cheat on her, uh, or him? What if, um, what if I grow bored? What if they grow bored? Uh, they project so many what ifs and a, a what if is what a what if is a fear of the future and all the people and by the way myself included I, I was the master of ambivalence I would always be like what if I get bored what if I want to sleep with someone else what if you know what if I end up as unhappy as my mom and dad did all those all those things and I realized that whenever I was what ifing my worries about the future kept me from being like appreciating the love I had in the present and so by changing what if to I will accept it if 
I will accept it if she cheats on me. I will accept it if I cheat on her. I will accept it if she grows bored of me. I will accept it if I grow bored of her. A lot of people let go of that. So what if it's about the future, but why is it about the past? So, so if something happens that let's say your partner does, to not ask why, because you're never going to get an answer. Like if someone, if she does something, let's say she cheats and you didn't like that, you can't really ask why and because and, and, you can't change the past. You could just say something like, I wish this hadn't happened, but... I wish still sounds like a hope that I wish sounds even more like a hope to, to, to change it. I guess, I guess you have to say, I'll accept it too. And I guess you can say why about yourself. You can't say why about someone else. Like I think you're saying you can say why about yourself. Why did I, what, what drew me to that person? Is there what responsibility might I have? How can I, why did I, you know, why did I, when it was going under my nose, was I blind to it? Cause a lot of times people know it's happening, but they, they're there or know that, that it's there, but they sort of stay in fantasy. So you can say the why about yourself, but I think you're right. Saying the why about the other person, uh, there's a phrase called pain chopping. Uh, you know, people pain chop trying to get all the details, feel like they'll never know enough and, and, and pain chopping. But I think that's true. I think maybe even saying, you know, I accept that they did that and now I got to go on my own journey to explore why this happened so it doesn't happen again. So, so Neil, the, the, the truth oddly is this weird sort of book where it's about your life completely, and it's about this truth and authenticity that, that you always bring to the page, which is really magnificent, and so many people, so many writers are afraid to do it. And it's totally sexual, the book, but at the same time, it's like a self-help book. Yeah, well, I guess maybe we'll kind of close with this question. So, yeah, I tried between the lines to keep – to give everyone the information they needed to take their own sort of journey and everyone's journey is different, but the information, the pieces they needed to recognize these parts of themselves and, and recognize how their upbringing plays a part in their behavior and their relationship choices. So maybe I'll ask you, because I think obviously your questions so much come from your own perspective and your own experiences, which you've written about and discussed a bit. Uh, did you get anything about, uh, did you see anything about yourself in the pages or anything you related to? Oh yeah, totally. I mean, I think probably... I mean, I'm probably maybe uh, not as exploratory as you because I think I'd probably be like too neurotic. And uh, uh, but definitely, in, in, you know, relationships are an ongoing struggle to sort of manage and, and accept. And that's what I got out of it is is this overwhelming feeling like, look, no matter what happens, I can't change the person I'm with, but I can try to always endeavor to change myself to be to be a better person. And and that's right because you did write a post a while back about the non-monogamous experiments, didn't you? Uh, I don't know. I can't remember. <laughs> uh, but um, maybe not. I think you did. But anyway, um, about something along those lines. But oh, and so you said relationships were always a struggle. Uh, do you know the why about yourself for that? Probably not. No. Probably I have to explore that more. Yeah, maybe that's our next uh, discussion. Yes, definitely. Well, Neil, thanks so much. The truth. I highly recommend it. I've already read it twice now. Not just to prepare for this podcast because I didn't even know we were going to do a podcast, but it was such an enjoyable book. I really loved it. And I hope everybody listening to this will, will read it because it's very valuable. And look, let's let's podcast again about stuff other than books at some point. Uh, let's do it. I think we got a lot to discuss and a lot in common. Thank you. Yeah. Thanks, Neil. Talk to you soon. Bye. Bye. For more from James, check out the James Altucher Show on the Stansberry Radio Network at stansberryradio.com and get yourself on the free insiders list today.
Caesars Sportsbook is the only sportsbook app with Caesars rewards. That means win or lose, every bet brings you closer to the types of perks only Caesars can offer. Like hotel stays at over 50 iconic destinations, bonus bets, daily profit boosts, tickets to the game, dining, and so much more. Whether you're a new or existing customer, Caesars Sportsbook is always rewarding. Must be 21. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Caesars Sportsbook. Don't just spectate, participate.